0: Welcome to Superintendent Radio Network. I'm Guy Cipriano. This is episode number 75 of the Tartan Talks podcast, our monthly conversation with an American Society of Golf Course Architects member. And joining us this month is Brian Costello. Brian is a partner at JMP Golf Design Group alongside Bob Moore. Brian grew up caddying at the famed San Francisco Golf Club, but his career journey has taken him all over the world and most extensively to... Various countries in Asia during their respective golf booms. We're going to chat with Brian about interacting with developers and clients in other parts of the world. And we're also going to learn what he's up to these days. But before we get going with Brian, we'd like to thank Better Billy Bunker for supporting the podcast. Better Billy Bunker is not only a big supporter of the American Society of Golf Course Architects, Better Billy Bunker supports a number of industry efforts, including the terrific work of golf course superintendents. So we're glad they're on board, and we're glad we received the opportunity to chat with Brian for the first time. Well, Brian, thanks for joining the podcast. This is going to be a fun chat, and I'm glad you were able to take the time to do it. Uh, Before becoming a golf course architect, you spent five years with a landscape architecture firm in the Bay Area. What did you learn in those five years, and how did you break into golf course architecture coming from a landscape architecture background?
1: Yeah, I started um, at a firm called Hargreaves Associates in San Francisco uh, after I graduated from UC Davis with a degree in landscape architecture, and they were a group of young landscape architects, mostly from uh, a firm, SWA, in Sausalito. And they were doing some really interesting um, kind of evocative landscapes in both uh, urban centers and large-scale outdoor spaces. And it, it really wasn't what many might consider as a traditional, you know, using the term, shrubbed-up landscape architectural firm. Uh, instead, they were doing some really interesting and neat stuff with sculptural landforms and kind of one-of-a-kind water features and some really interesting urban hardscapes. So it was a really fun and, and kind of exciting studio atmosphere, kind of similar to what, you know, sort of experienced at UC Davis in, in that sort of studio atmosphere, you know, where everybody's kind of collaborating and, and walking around and, and engaging. And then in addition to learning firsthand about some of the nuts and bolts of landscape architecture, um, I got exposed to, you know, how landscape architects might be working with building architects and, and land planning, and, and that's certainly something that I might not otherwise have been exposed to had I jumped into golf course architecture right away. And then as far as how I broke into Golf course architecture, it kind of starts with looking back a bit further about how I was introduced to the game by my dad when I was about 10 years old. And then uh, caddying at San Francisco Golf Club, which was close to home. And that's where I really learned how to play. Um, you know, my mom would would drop me off early on Monday mornings when the course was closed. And I would try to cram in as much golf as I could during that time and she'd pick me up. Uh, kind of before the uh, street lights would go on, if you will. So, you know, being exposed to those or that particular iconic track, um, and, and at the time I didn't know who Tillinghast was. You know, I just thought it was a really cool golf course. But it certainly, you know, in hindsight, made me a better player. And uh, more importantly, as it turns out, it planted some seeds that would bear fruit later on. And then I played on the high school golf team for four years, and then went on to UC Davis uh, to get my landscape architecture degree. And I really didn't pick up my sticks except for the rare occasion during that time. And it was in my senior year at Davis that I was playing golf with one of my uh, fellow studio buddies. And we were talking about what we are going to do after graduating. And, and I said, well, I'm going to head back to San Francisco in the Bay Area and work at one of the, the firms I'd been interviewing with. And my buddy Scott says, well, I'm going to become a golf course architect. And I literally stopped in the middle of fairway and looked at him and said, you can do that? Because from my experience, you know, growing up in the Bay Area, all the golf courses that I knew were built a long time ago. So, well, I thought it was really cool. It really didn't think that much about it. Um, So I did end up, like I said, going on to Hargreaves Associates in San Francisco and Scott ended up joining up with uh, Mike Paulette. Um, so Scott and I had stayed in touch over the years, playing golf occasionally. And, and five years after graduation from Davis, he calls me up and says, Hey, we're looking to hire. W- would you be interested? And, and I first turned him down because I'd recently got a promotion and really enjoyed the work we were doing. But he persisted and said basically, Hey, you know, just come on down and talk to us. And the more they talked, the more I listened, and suddenly, you know, my, my passion for playing golf and my career path, obviously, were merging, and, and here I am some 33 years later as a golf course architect.
0: Wow, there's a, there's a lot to unpack there. That's, that's quite a story. Uh, in, in terms of the landscape architecture firm, did any of the projects you worked on in that studio, are they, do they still exist? Do you go by them? Do you see them at all today? Um, yeah, we had
1: done an urban landscape at um, a plaza in in San Jose. It's actually right in downtown. Uh, it had to be a multi-purpose multifunctional space because they have Christmas at the park there. Um, so it's just this interesting context of you know this urban setting. it's literally kind of shaped like a capsule or a, or a Tylenol pill for lack of a better way to describe it. But it had a lot of functions and a lot of purposes, you know, as an urban space, um, something that attracted people to the to the plaza. Um, and some of the work we did was in Denver, which I haven't seen recently, but some of them were private residences like up in the Napa Hills um, for somebody that was starting a, a winery. Um, there were just some really interesting landscapes. Also, there was a park out by Candlestick park the stadium out there so yeah I, I do get the occasion to revisit them um and see how they've matured over the years which is which is really, really fun
0: we've had a lot of guests on the podcast who come from landscape architecture backgrounds that's fairly common uh, amongst your asgca peers uh what skills did you use as a landscape architect that are applicable to golf course architecture
1: Yeah, I mean, first for me, I think there's many paths to becoming a golf course architect. But um, I I think landscape architecture provides probably one of the best foundations for the profession. You know, there's the nuts and bolts technical skills of the profession, you know, the obvious grading, drainage, irrigation, you know, how softscapes and hardscapes function. You know, there's, there's site analysis and land planning. Um, you know, we, we took courses in professional practice about management and, and ethics, and you know, code of conduct and things of that sort. You know, uh, biology and broader understanding of, of ecosystems and, and what influences those and in sustainability. And then, on this, at the same time, on the creative side, exposure to arts and and kind of the related aesthetic principles and how you successfully merge those elements into exciting, you know, spaces, places where people want to gather. Um, And so, you know, in fact, thinking about that, that's almost uh, verbatim what we do as golf course architects. It's just that the user profile sort of changes. Um, You know, the disciplines are, are, are different. Um, and yet they're fairly simple, and you're applying these same artistic and scientific principles to golf course architecture as you do to uh, to landscape
0: architecture. At what point in your golfing career or career as a caddy did you realize that uh, getting a chance to walk the grounds of San Francisco Golf Club was Pretty darn special and unique. And what did you learn uh, from that course? The more you, you you studied it,
1: because I was out there one principally to earn a little money yep. you know, <laughs> caddying, uh, um, and then taking advantage. Obviously, when you were out there on the golf course, you were you were knee deep and a lot of history that, that, as a young you know teenager, I wasn't really quite aware of. Other than it was just visually uh, an impressive place to visit and you can't help but absorb the experience that a caddy has with members, you know, and watching how they, you know, engage in the golf course and, and what brings them joy and what brings them heartache as they're playing the golf course. You know, I caddied for some, you know, higher handicap members and, and occasionally some lower handicap uh, players and you could see the difference in those player profiles. And again, I didn't have that perspective as a as a fifteen year old, but you kind of look back on it, and you couldn't help but um, absorb some of that um, dynamic that was going on. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then as I played the golf course and improved as a player, you start to dissect a bit more about what you particularly enjoy about. Playing the golf course, you know how, how as I was getting older and maybe a bit stronger and be able to hit the ball better. You know, bunkers that were I couldn't nearly consider trying to get over or around. And now I could, so it was again. It was um, without a doubt instrumental in, in sort of my development again as a, as a player, and then again in hindsight as a golf architect and what I appreciated about that layout. So it, it was without a doubt, um, it, it, it has an imprint. It had an imprint on me then, and it certainly has an imprint on me now. Yeah,
0: it's funny how that works, right? Like, I grew up caddying at a Willie Park Jr. course, and I guess when I was 15 years old, I, did, I didn't think much of Willie Park Jr. <laughs> right. And now I think it's the coolest thing. <laughs>
1: right, right, right.
0: Yeah.
1: Right. Yeah, we we had an ASGCA meeting some years back um, at at Pebble Beach, and I I had an opportunity. They had some things uh, on either side of the meeting and got to play San Francisco Golf Club again. And so it was, one, it was a tremendous joy to be able to go back out there and play it, but look at it through the lens of somebody, uh, you know, decades older, and um, that was a treat, without a doubt. And I, I did look at it from an entirely different perspective, and realized what an impression
0: it did have on me, um, which was really cool. Going back to your start in in golf course architecture, who were some of your influences? What architects or people did you work with helped shape that early stage of your golf architecture career when you were transitioning from landscape architecture?
1: Yeah. You know, again, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. because of uh, of my growing up in the Bay Area, um, Mm -hmm. I was certainly exposed to some Mackenzie golf courses, and, and like I said, the the, the Tillinghast course mm-hmm. at San Francisco Golf Club. Um, and you know, it's hard. To, I guess looking at it strictly from my perspective now is that you know I'm certainly influenced by the Golden Age, you know, architects, you know, Mackenzie Ross, and again, Tillinghast for sure. Um, you know, some of the Mackenzie courses in the Bay Area you know, Sharp Park, Green Hills, uh, Claremont, Paso Tempo, and Cypress, um, you know, playing those and experiencing them and, and how he used the topography to both route the golf course and, and, and how the, the natural land generally afforded the opportunity to present the bunkering and the strategic values. Um, and I recall early in my golf architect's career reading his 13 principles of golf course design and then, a, then revisiting them later. You know, they, they had some resonance early on, but as you mature and grow as a golf course architect, you go back and you go, wow, that, that really did apply and continues to apply. So, um, his influence without a doubt um you, you know, remains uh what well then. Um and again, drawing back on on, you know, Tillinghouse, um his use of the topography at San Francisco Golf Club and these big sprawling uh bunkers that framed, you know, rather wide fairways um and, and placed a premium on preferred angles, you know, and and how you approached the green. And then, you know, the, the interesting undulations on the, on the green and, and how that further reinforced the advantages or disadvantages of, of where you placed your tee shot. Um, you know, all, all those things have an impact on me now uh, and have for some time.
0: How did your career as a golf course architect develop in – Evolve. I mean, now you're you're a partner in a firm. Just kind kind of take our listeners through how you're able to progress through the ranks.
1: Well, when I first joined the firm um, in 1989, um, it, it, there was Mike Paulette was the, the, the head of the organization at the time, and another ASGCA member, Mark Raythor, at the time was was his lead designer. And we were working. They had a a rather extensive portfolio of projects in Japan, and that was sort of where I um, cut my teeth as a golf course architect, is working on some really great uh, golf courses in Japan that had really good budgets, um, interesting land. I mean, a lot of times the golf courses were forced up into the hillsides because they needed to leave the you know the developable land for agriculture, Um, but it was like, you know, baptism by fire, Uh, but in a good way in in the sense that um, we had a number of projects that really required, you know, you to to use them, again, drawing back upon those landscape architecture uh, skill sets. Um, And and then the firm, you know, purposely progressed uh, in moving into different markets. Um, You know, we, we've seen a lot of boom and bust cycles, and Japan certainly was uh, the first big bust that we saw when that occurred in the 90s. Um, so it was what I think it was five years after I joined the firm that um, I, I became a partner in the firm along with my other um, uh, partners. And, you know, we just sort of – took the reins and wanted to develop both uh, our own careers as golf course architects, but also to expand our, our, um, our regions and our markets. And, you know, doing that in an international scenario is is one thing um, and doing it domestically um, although there are certainly parallels um, and challenges um, that's, of the progression of what's occurred over the past several decades, um, pivoting, you know, to new markets, um, being able to at, at some point in our in our careers to be able to identify markets that we wanted to try to get into and set up a strategy to do that and and successfully pull it off. Which uh, you know, looking back on that, we we made some right decisions collectively as a group. Um, to try to identify markets that you wanted to get into um, and you know we have a lot of really good fortunately a lot of good successful golf courses courses that you know have, have played professional tournaments on and um, have gotten awards and so it, it's been a great great ride and hopefully it's going to continue for, for for a bit longer
0: what have you learned about different cultures and golf philosophies? In all these travels of yours, and all these projects in different nations,
1: you, you know it, it, that's a great question because I, I, I've thought about that, and, and I've been asked a similar question over these years. Is there's even though there sometimes might be a language barrier, um, there's kind of a universal understanding in golf, right? Where you you can play golf with somebody that doesn't speak English, and I may not necessarily speak or understand um, their language, but you know, birdie, bogey, par translates across you know a lot of different uh, countries, Um, and and it's that's been one of the 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 best experiences for me is is to be able to see how golf is appreciated across so many different cultures. Um, You know, different countries may approach it. Um differently as an example, say in Japan and Korea, you know, these, the majority of the folks that play the game are in heavily populated or, you know, densely populated areas. And the ability to go out and play golf and kind of decompress up on a, on a golf course is, is, you know, a treasure to them. And, and that's not dissimilar to what people here in the States experience for sure, but it's just interesting to see how. Uh, Golf can translate across cultures as something that can be enjoyed by, you know, generations, Um, um, you know, people of different abilities. Um, You know, one of the things that was kind of interesting that someone that – well, obviously dissimilar to what we do in the States is like in Japan – they have two starting times. You have your starting time for the front nine, you have lunch, and then you have a starting time on the second nine. Um, you know, that's different, um, but, but, you know, pretty cool <laughs> at the same time. Again, because that's what tends to work for them. They're driving along distances and uh, being able to enjoy, say, your, your time at a golf course a little bit longer um, is something that they really appreciate. Whereas on the flip side, you know, here, maybe in the States and some other places, a lot of times they're trying to play golf uh, in rather a quick fashion, and pace of play is an issue. And, um, you know, that, that's a different dynamic.
0: One of the interesting things I noticed on your website is that you describe golf design as art on a grand scale. Uh, what's the most challenging part about turning a landscape into a work of art, especially on some of the rugged? Uh, landscapes it sounds like you've worked at overseas.
1: Yeah, I, um, you know, when you're playing golf, you're you're hoping for a really memorable, uh, you know, experience. I mean, some of the, my best rounds of golf, um, you know, was enjoying the company of, of those that I was playing with, but also something that was visually stimulating. And We absolutely work on a really big canvas and understanding scale is really important in the design of a golf course. Um, Whether we get a piece of property that's, you know, beautiful, it has all these natural resources, wonderful topography, great tree cover, or, or, you know, combination of forested areas and open areas, um, or something that's literally a blank canvas, and you have to create the the landscape. Um, Whatever you do, it it has to ultimately feel as if it's it's appropriate to the setting. Um, and something that's, uh, you know, again, what I mentioned earlier about um, my early years of creating sculptural landforms, whatever you're, you're producing, whether it's minimally impacting the landscape or whether it's it's wall-to-wall, um, it, it needs to flow visually. It needs to tie into the strategic values or, or, you know, how you tilt the fairway, you know, how you support a bunker complex. You know, those features really need to tie into each other and provide – kind of this seamless transition across the landscape. And I su- suppose the, the challenge is, is what I really actually look forward to the most, is how can I make the most out of this situation and this site and create something that's really dramatic and, and
0: dynamic and fun to play. How about when you're working on a renovation, can a golf course renovation have an artistic element, or is that just a bit too challenging sometimes? Well, it
1: it certainly depends, obviously, on the scale of the renovation, you know, the budget, all that plays into the equation. But no matter what you do, you're always trying to identify the merits and and maybe the constraints and and what needs to be addressed the most, and then trying to identify how can we maximize the potential of what we're given Um, in so without a doubt, you can you can certainly be artistic working with the renovation, um, but you know each one is has its individual um, you know programs, if you will. Where um, what's the budget? Are we doing it piecemeal? Are we doing it? We're closing the whole thing down and doing literally a wall to wall renovation you know, you're always just trying to maximize it, whether what end of the scale or what, what end of the spectrum. You're always trying to walk away from it saying, yeah, we did the best we could here and the client's happy. Um, that's, that, that's the that's the satisfaction of whatever that challenge might be.
0: Sometimes people that are artistic and creative aren't necessarily the the best business people. I know that's a challenge to balance the two. What are some of the demands of running the business side of the job and how have you learned how to uh, handle those over the years?
1: Yeah. It, isn't that funny how a lot of times the, the, the artists um, don't necessarily have the best business uh,
0: mindset. But Us writers are uh, guilty of that too, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> I
1: think the, the best way to describe it is, is you try to, um, I don't know compartmentalize you have to address what drives you and what inspires you and what, you know, why you're in the business of golf course architecture. And at the same time, understand that you have to deal with, you know, bookkeeping taxes, insurances, workers comp, professional liability, you know, all those things that you can't ignore them. They're there, but, um, it's just, it's part of the landscape, pardon the pun. you you, you mm-hmm. got to do it. Um, and at the same time, if you can segment it and compartmentalize it and know that it's being done, you can focus on what you really love to do best.
0: Mm-hmm. It's kind of interesting. We always hear about these different awards that golf course architects receive, and we see them listed on websites and in other publications, but we don't really talk a lot about them on the, the podcast. This one really caught my attention uh your firm's work at i'll probably butcher the name of the course but Bukat pandawa golf and country club in Bali was selected as the world's best part three course as part of the 2017 world golf awards a did i get the name of the course right and b what made this project so special and unique for your firm you,
1: you did nail it on the name um full credit goes to to my partner bob moore um huh for this particular project, um, I, I visited the site once, and um, the, the, the property has, I think it's five, um, like, five-star hotels that, that are part of the overall development. And because they were maximizing that potential, um, they said they really only had about half the land, um, and they thought a nine-hole golf course would be um, appropriate. So Bob, you know, was thinking on this, you know, I'm not sure necessarily that a nine-hole is is the best approach to take in offering golf because there's a lot of 18-hole golf courses in the market, and people may tend to gravitate towards that. So, again, full credit goes to him. he thought, you know what, no, let's do an 18-hole par-3 course. Um, It'll be something unique. You know, if you've got that many resorts that are surrounding the golf course, you know, the time and and the pace of play. And if you're there for a convention and don't have the the amount of time uh, necessarily to spend on an 18 hole golf experience, an 18 hole part three golf course would would be perfect. And so one of the unique things about it is I, I think it's, gosh, about 10 holes have some view of the ocean. He engaged with, um, some artists in the community to, to recreate some of these temples and in, in some of the images um, that are sprinkled throughout the golf course. So it's contextually, it, it's part of the Balinese experience. You've got those, those 10 holes again, of, about that have these wonderful ocean views and there's just a lot of interesting rock features and, um, some some water features, and it's just a lot of elements on each hole that make it unique and interesting and fun to play. And voila, the award came about. I mean, ha- having the the Bali address certainly helps, but, but Bob put a tremendous amount of creative effort into it to make it a really
0: fun and interesting and unique layout. As most of our listeners are well aware of, uh, the high-end golf travel sector of the United States, part three courses are becoming common and they're being built more and more. Have they caught on in other parts of the world in in resorts and other high-end developments?
1: Yes, but I think the U.S. is probably ahead of the game in that respect Uh, because I think without a doubt, the U.S. and perhaps Europe and, and, and Australia, they may lead, you know, the charge, if you will, on some of these different twists or different solutions to how you can provide golf that's not necessarily the the quote-unquote traditional 18-hole golf course. Um, But yeah, and typically some of those, um, you know, golf courses are um, in addition to an 18-hole traditional golf course. So you might have a complex that offers more than just the 18-hole golf course but, but a par three course. But I think that's changing. Um, you know, the same challenges that we have here in the U.S. as far as the cost and the, the maintenance and the staffing and all those, those pressures, you know, to attract, you know, millennials and, 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 some of, you know, new golfers to the game, you need to provide some of those alternative forms of, of golf where or, or the par three course or a six hole course or some other Um, non-traditional number of holes are, are highly attractive. uh, And so I think we're going to see more of that.
0: What's the golf development situation like in Asia right now? And how much potential is there in some of the Asian markets? I don't need you to give away all your secrets here about the work you're trying to do, but is it starting to pick up again in Asia post COVID-19?
1: Without a doubt, COVID's had an impact. You know, we had a a fairly balanced portfolio of work with domestic projects Mm -hmm. and international projects. Um, COVID's had a much longer impact on some of the international markets that, you know, particularly in the Asia-Pacific Rim, Brazil and the like. It's had an impact, and, and they're a little bit behind um as far as a more fuller recovery uh as a result of that however we've been you know contacted recently by some existing clients and new potential clients in some of these markets whereas it seems that they are feeling a bit more comfortable that they can move forward on some projects which is certainly encouraging not just for the obvious anytime we can move forward with the impact that COVID has had in markets so much the better um, but you, so yes to answer your question we've seen that I don't know that we're going to see necessarily anything like we saw um, you know some years past or over the past decade in some of the markets that we've been working in um, but without a doubt we're seeing some you know uh, new contracts that we're, we're signing up to do some initial
0: master planning. Um. Uh, Brian, how, how cool has it been to be one of the people and firms to introduce golf to, to some of these countries? I take it some of the places you've worked over the course of your career did not have many golf courses when you got there. How cool is it to introduce a new game and in industry to a country or help in, introduce a new game and in industry to a country?
1: It's been um, really rewarding. I mean to put it to put it mildly. Mm -hmm. You know, I'll take an example of of Brazil. Um, You know, they had a very uh, small number of golf courses that were generally focused around uh, São Paulo and Rio, um, in a very passionate but small, again, you know, golf community and. You know, they, they added some new golf courses, which I did a couple down there. And so applying everything that I learned over my career into some of these golf courses and trying to work closely with the owners on the one hand to try to realize what they envisioned that they wanted and at the same time protect them from wisely spending the money on something that was going to have, you know, a, a, a return on their investment. Um, so so that was really rewarding, you know, say in Brazil and then in some of the other markets that we've worked on, um, it might've been a second generation or a second golf boom, um, say in Japan or, or, um, or Korea, um, you know, China, we were involved in for a number of years since the the late eighties, actually the firm had done a golf course in Beijing. Um, in the late 80s with uh, a Japanese, uh, company. Um, and we've done a number of golf courses there. So be, to be able to be involved in that maturation, you know, from its infancy to something that, that we look at today and see the number of golf courses in, in their countries is, is really rewarding because we've had an opportunity to work with some really good clients on some really good you know, pieces of land with some really good budgets.
0: We'll move on to a project of yours, Brian, a heck of a lot closer to home than some of the ones we've been talking about. Uh, The recent renovation of Palo Alto Hills Golf and Country Club in Northern California. What were you trying to accomplish with that project and how nice was it to get that opportunity close to your home?
1: Yeah. You know, first of all, uh, it was such a treat to have something, um, you know, 25 minutes away from home versus, you know, nearly a 25-hour or 24-hour time difference, you know, with several plane flights to some of the far-reaching corners of the globe that we've worked on. But a really cool uh, opportunity, for sure. Um, one interesting note about the, the course is that when they were first planning it, um, Ken Venturi was invited um kind of with these prospective founding members or founding members and some prospective members. Uh, and there's a picture of uh, Ken Venturi standing next to Walt Disney, who was invited there by one of the founding members. And there was some dialogue between the two as they were introduced to each other. But that's just an interesting bit of side note about sort of the history of the founding of the golf club. But it's a terrific site. It's up on the foothills above... Um, uh, Palo Alto, um, it's next to this uh, preserve, this nature preserve, and then it has these sweeping views from San Francisco across to Oakland, across the Bay to Mount Diablo. It, it's really, really beautiful. Um, but like, you know, uh, many golf courses that are, you know, nearly 60 years old, um, they really had done a tremendous amount of um, – you know holistic changes to their infrastructure um there there was some other architects that had been involved a little bit piecemeal here and there but um it, it was ripe for an upgrade to the infrastructure um you know the a lot of the bunkers were out of play with the you know the distances that people were hitting the balls these days and the the green complexes you know were still more severely sloped be, because of when they were originally built um, and very, very limited pin positions. And uh, another thing that was the product of um, the, the original layout of the golf course is they planted about, I don't know, I can't remember exactly, 700 Monterey Pines, which um, unfortunately were going through, um, uh, you know, a disease that was progressing through, the Monterey Pines, uh, a beetle and then the, the periodic droughts that we've, we've been having. So it was, it was a perfect opportunity and the club finally realized that, that, you know, we need to do something to, um, to elevate and bring back the, the prestige of the golf club. So it, it was a, a long process, got involved in it, uh, around 2015. And we just, this year opened up all 18 holes, um, But it completely new bunkering, you know, completely refreshed and redid all the the tees, the majority of the fairways and the green complexes. Um, Really proud of it. It, It's turned out really well. Uh, One of the things stylistically was, you know, the bunkering was that older sort of 60s style. Um, Now it's much more rustic and organic, which is a bit more fitting with uh, the preserve context, because you can look across some holes and you can see for several miles across these, you know, rolling, undulating hills with uh, uh, the the oak woodland, oak savanna. And that was something else that we took upon ourselves is to remove a lot of the native trees, the Monterey Pines being one. There were some other you know, ash trees and, and other ornamentals that we took out, you know, so we addressed the irrigation. We, 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 um, introduced more fescue and, and fine fescues to create this kind of woolly character to it. Um, kind of in keeping with being a bit more sensitive to the amount of water that we were using and ultimately making it a much more fun golf course for, for the members. Um, it, it really did have some you know severely limited pin positions where you played the majority of the golf holes and the strategy was you know just stay below the hole stay below the hole so um, they're really enjoying the multiple pin positions and, and a lot more variety and how the course can be set up um, and it, it it really caters to to their membership and, and they've had um, a, a really good uh, to put it modestly, bump in their membership values as a result of the renovation. And they're thrilled with it, and so am I.
0: We're at an interesting time in golf, if you really think about it. Uh, More people across the world are playing the game than ever, according to an RNA survey that was released last year. Yet there are tremendous land use and water challenges all over the world. What do you see the role of the golf course architect being in the next decade and where where do you think the projects you and other ASGCA colleagues are heading? And I know that's a huge big picture question.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's true. I mean, we approach every project with that in mind. Um, You know, you want to create something that's going to be successful for the client. You're going to want to create something that understands what the market wants and what you think the market wants and what you anticipate the market wants. You know, I mean, sometimes the dialogue that we may have with, with an owner for a new project or with, you know, committees, uh, on a, on a club that's renovating is, is applying what we understand as, as golf course architects and members of the ASGCA is, you know, Let's create something that's going to be financially viable. You know, let's be smart with the dollars and putting in the the proper infrastructure so you can maintain the golf course properly. Um, You know, trying to educate them uh, about past experiences and what you foresee is driving the market going forward. You know, again, you know, put the effort in. And we also put the effort in, too, to listen to the client and and finding out uh, what it is they want, you know, in the case, again, of both a new course or an existing course that's considering a renovation um, and and taking that information and creatively translating that into something that addresses those issues and and, um, is is looking forward as to where you think the – that market's going to go, where um, the the economy can go, you know, because in some of the markets we've worked on internationally, everybody's thinking well, they just need to build a better course than their neighbor. And, and that's true to an extent, but you, you have to look not just in the, the here and now, what you foresee for the next couple of years, but you have to look a little bit beyond that. Um, so yeah, your question was a bit broad and far-reaching, but I, I think that's that's the benefit of hiring, you know, golf course architects with, with you know, a good portfolio of, of successful projects. And, you know, without tooting our, our horn too much, you know, ASGCA members not only draw from their own experience, um, but also the experience of, of others in the profession, you um, and and, and the resources that are available to them to make sure they're putting their best foot forward and providing those those services and that knowledge and that experience to the clients.
0: Okay, last thing here, and I promise that this will not be as a broad base of a question, Brian. (laughs) You've probably worked in places that you never imagined you were going to work when you were carrying golf clubs at San Francisco Golf Club what's a place you haven't worked that you'd like to work here in the next decade?
1: Okay. Um, you, you know, it, it, it's interesting. I'll, 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 treat it in a twofold fashion. Iceland. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I, I was surprised some of my colleagues uh, on the um, executive committee we were over there recently for a meeting and uh i can't remember the exact number but i was blown away I, I there's a there's a number of golf courses over there um and i think that's just a kind of a cool landscape um and interesting to talk about but i, I think it was something like over 60 golf courses I, I i don't have that number in front of me but it was just a surprising number and i may be i may be uh, erring on the side of being low but anyway i thought that was kind of cool and then the other side would be to to do something again locally. Um, if just to to be where I'm at in my career, and having had the opportunity to work in many different places um, and meeting a lot of really interesting people in those locations, doing something locally, you know, considering where I started, at, you know, as a young kid in, in the in the Bay Area. Uh, and, and giving back to the game, if you will, locally um, or, or internationally, like I say with the Iceland example, I think is, is, is a cool opportunity,
0: uh, if you will, maybe to wrap, wrap up a bow on a, on a, on a career um, down the road. Well, Brian, this was an awesome conversation. Thank you for taking so much time to join us, and congrats on everything you've achieved throughout your career, and we'll have to do this again at some point, point. we can hear about the wild sites you've worked on.
1: <laughs> Sounds good, Guy. <laughs> I appreciate it. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you so much.